I think you'd have to expend a lot of political capital going against the military, and so you need a president willing to do that. Uh, so what you what you do what you do is you start out. You know, the Democrats never know to do this. You start out with the extreme position. So at first, you say we're going to transfer all of the military assets to all the local Antifa chapters, <laughs> and, and that's going to be that's going to be the starting negotiating point. It's just going to give you a free giveaway. So so, and that's then from there you can negotiate. I think that's a great strategy. <laughs> Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper, welcoming to the podcast Daniel Bessner, who is a historian at the University of Washington, um, a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute, a contributing editor at Jackman Mag, and most importantly of all by far, um, a columnist at Foreign Exchanges, the uh, Derek Davison um, Substack newsletter and publishing empire now um, that, you know, apparently will be taking on many hundreds of employees in the next uh, the next, you know, few months. <laughs> so welcome. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Uh, thanks so much for uh, having me, guys. And I hope I could help Derek build his empire. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, you know, we were going to have you on quite some time ago to talk about, your, you know, your first column for, for Derek talking about, you know, the U.S. empire and, you know, why it needs an enemy. Um, but I thought, you know, that that's been quite a while. And, and since that went up and, you know, maybe you could uh, try to situate that in a little bit more of a, you know, both like current and historical context. Um, you know, um, just to, to sort of like throw a kind of hot take out at you. One, one reason why I suspect that the conservative movement has kind of gone insane over the last, uh, you know, two decades or so is that they've lost this enemy, you know, as you, as you rightly argue in your column, you know, that this, this is one of like the props of sort of conservative politics and imperialist politics, which was, you know, that, that had a presence in the democratic party too, was like kind of anti-communism. Um, and now, you know, for a while that like after the Soviet Union collapse, there was nobody, but then we had the, the, you know, the sort of lease on life there with the war on terror. But now that's kind of just sort of faded to the sidelines. It just keeps going on its own momentum, but nobody really pays attention to it. And it seems like people are rooting around for some sort of visceral hatred and energy to replace that, you know, that, that motivating factor, you know, they think, ah, there were the commies are coming to get us. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's like we, if if there's nothing there, we got to make something up. So it's Antifa now. Antifa is going to come and get you in your bed. Right. And and I think that's a good point. And the way that I think about it is that um, anti-communism uh, was really um, an ideology and an approach to the world that papered over a lot of differences within the conservative movement itself. Uh, if you think of sort of the post-1945 conservative movement as consisting of sort of anti-communist, anti-totalitarians, uh, the religious right, and, and traditional sort of free market classical liberals, um, what really united all of these uh, philosophies, these ways of approaching the world was an anti, was this sort of anti-communist perspective, right? And so that I think allowed conservatives to come together into this particular tent um, and provided a particular guiding logic to this way of viewing the world. But what happens, of course, after the end of the Cold War is that anti-communism goes away. Uh, and so I think you begin to see a, a, a slow um, 
tearing asunder of the conservative movement. Um, so in the 1990s, as I talk about in the piece, you have this sort of interregnum period between roughly 1989-2001, where um, the U.S. empire, the U.S. military, you know, people who had spent decades building a career as sort of Soviet specialists, what, what have you, are looking for a justifying thing to do, a justifying logic for the American empire. And there's this turn to sort of genocide prevention, um, not amongst everyone, but I would say amongst a, a sort of cohort of center-left and center-right people, ranging from Samantha Power uh, on the center-left to sort of like um, neoconservatives on the center, center-right, people like Max Boot or Max Boot avance la lettre, as, as the case may be. Um, <laughs> and so this, there's this guiding logic in the 90s um, that, you know, is kind of difficult to maintain because you're basically saying the United States is going to be the world's policeman. Is this really going to last? Is this public support? Blah, blah, blah. And then what happens is 9-11 happens, right? And this seems like, you know, a great thing. And there's this coming together uh, under this sort of anti-terrorist, which is really uh, an ideology laid over a lot of anti-Islamic um, fears, you know, of jihadists, of radical Islam. You get writing about Islamofascism, etc. Um, but it's, as you mentioned, by, by now, it's pretty clear that this isn't going to be enough to justify the American empire. Um, so I think what you've seen in the last few years is a turn to sort of this new Cold War with China. Uh, and China, of course, is a way better um, adversary than a, a terrorist group because it's a state power. You know, it, it's enormous. It has an enormous population. It's very rich. It has nuclear weapons. And of course, if the United States or uh, sort of hawks in this country are able to actually initiate a new Cold War with China, then the sort of tap of American military money will be will be turned on and will be turned on hard. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. That makes sense because the the war on terror was everlasting and perpetual because it's a war on an abstraction. So by, by definition, you can't ever end that war. But it seems like a Cold War often functions the same way, at least when you have a, a power that seems to be growing in power, uh, you know, indefinitely. So there, there's a benefit to that. Right. A- absolutely. Um, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think like you, you can't just be an, a liberal empire, right? A liberal empire always needs to have some form of justifying logic, um, whether it's you think about the British and the French you know, the, the civilizing mission, the mission civilatrice, uh, and things mm-hmm. along those lines. And what the United States' liberal empire was premised on is that, you know, World War One and World War Two destroyed Europe and the United States would, would, you know, be the armed prime power in the world and therefore you'd have peace and prosperity. Um, but you needed the Soviet Union to justify that. Uh, and now, after the Soviet Union's collapse, you need a sort of new type of logic. And that's what I think people are searching for right now. What what happened to responsibility to protect? You mentioned Samantha Power uh, shortly there, but like, did that fall by the wayside? I guess maybe Libya fell under that. Uh, but but what happened to, to kind of the, the liberals uh, banging the door on, on saving everyone that way? Well, I think there's there's sort of that's kind of served as a secondary justification for Iraq. Um, it was very popular in the uh, before nine eleven, um, and it was used to justify the intervention uh, in Libya in terms of Benghazi. Although, as we know, that was quickly swept aside, right? So I. I think the responsibility to protect was uh, more bark than bite. Um, in general, in, mm. in general, I think it it, it wasn't. Um, it didn't really provide the justifying logic in the way that someone like Samantha Power or, in, in some instances, George Soros would have wanted it to. Um, because I think it's very hard to convince Americans to spend money on the sort of world-spanning military mm. to like maybe save innocent people abroad. It's kind of difficult. Sure. Yeah. Um- yeah, so on the on the question of China, uh 
maybe to start out with, um, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the the coverage of the the what's happening in um, Xinjiang province to the Uyghurs. Uh, there, maybe just as a sort of initial matter. It seems to me like like there's a fair amount of of attention and coverage uh, going to this fellow named uh, Adrian Zenz, um, I believe, who, who's like kind of a kind of a kook, um, and he, you know, he has a lot of. You know, it, it seems to be uh, the source of a lot of this coverage about you know the 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 Uyghur like Uyghurs being like rounded up, putting put in camps and so on. Nevertheless, there are also a lot of other sources. Um, there was a uh, report in the Washington Post that was based on individual reporting and satellite data and stuff from Australia that seemed like it was pretty credible, you know, and like basically it seems uh, pretty clear that the, the, the Chinese government is actually doing a sort of uh, ethnic cleansing or even quasi genocidal action against this Muslim minority in Western China. And um you know, even if a couple of weirdos have sort of jumped onto that bandwagon, it doesn't really, you know, change much. So what, what, is that a fair read on the situation? Well, um, so just first and foremost, I'm not an expert on China, but I will say people who I respect and trust who are experts on China uh, do agree at, that at the very least there's some sort of ethnic re-education, ethnic cleansing, um, which can mean a variety of different things going on in Xinjiang. Um, so my understanding as not a specialist is that, yes, there's sure. almost certainly something going on uh, right now in Western uh, in Western China. Um, and so I think this raises a number of difficult questions for like the broad left, or let's just be specific, the rising social democratic left and, and how it, you know, confronts human rights issues. And I actually happened to write a piece about this about a year and a half ago-ish for The Nation that was titled How the Left Should Deal with Ethnic Cleansing um, in China. And we could go into sort of what I um, see some of the problems and prospects of that being, if you'd like. Yeah, sure. I, I, I mean, I guess I just wanted to situate that in in a sort of broader diplomatic context because, you know, yeah, as you say, there's a sort of uh, neocon or post neocon faction trying to gin up a new Cold War with China, but at the same time, you know, the economies of the of of China and the United States are extremely intertwined. You know, there's a g- gigantic trade deficit with China. Um, you know, they have a source of all sorts of, you know, key raw materials and so forth. I mean, it would be extraordinarily difficult to disentangle these two, you know, two entities. And then also there, there's a, a Adam Tu's article um, I wanted to, to mention about how, um, you know, President uh, Xi or, or whatever his title is, I believe is president. Um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has been making uh, in the last, you know, couple of weeks, very serious commitments about cutting their greenhouse gases. And the fact of the matter is, like, if you're going to do anything about climate change, China has got to be involved. China is the biggest emitter by far. They emit like twice as much as the United States now. And, you know, it, uh, climate change is an international problem. And that means probably, you know, dealing with this this uh, authoritarian regime, which is, you know, either you know, unpalatable or just like straight up like evil doing like world historical war crimes uh, to its own population. So like, yeah, maybe, you know, (laughs) 
sort of try to cook that all together and you think, Tell, what do we do about this? How do we think about no, this uh, as good uh, lefties? Right. So this is where I think it's important to always sort of douse um, a, a, a left approach to the world with a little bit of realism. Um, and that can mean a, a bunch of different things. But I think that for me, what it means in this specific instance is that um, – the United States is not going to, nor should it go to war with China um, over Taiwan or even over um, horrible human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Um, you just shouldn't fight World War III um, over these issues that we – it's not even clear that we'll be able to affect. Um, and so I think that's a really difficult position uh, for one to accept both both morally and ethically and, and sort of from a perspective where like clearly the left doesn't want genocide or ethnic cleansing or concentration camps. That's a foundational left principle. Um, but then the question is, if one is willing to accept that you don't want to fight World War III over these issues, or you don't want to, you know, prevent dealing with China with... Um if you don't want to basically put up obstacles to dealing with China uh, to help solve things like climate change or pandemic, which, as you know, as the two's article rightly points out, you're going to need China to uh, cut back carbon emissions uh, for, uh, you know, positive climate change um, action to to be undertaken. Then what do you do? And I honestly, I don't think there's a very satisfactory answer. I mean, what you could do is you could do diplomacy. Um, you could do uh, you could try to pressure China by, you know, kind of ginning up um, Arab state or Muslim state um, opposition to China. But if it were me, the way that I would do it is try to um, basically resettle refugees in the United States. I mean, this is an enormous country. We're a very rich country. We could even attach it to a jobs program and just offer blanket amnesty and sort of blanket citizenship to the Uyghurs or people who are suffering in Hong Kong. Or should China ever, you know, cross the Taiwan Strait and actually try to invade Taiwan? to people uh, who are living in Taiwan. Um, and I think sort of thinking creatively is going to be crucial if we're going to um, deal with China in the coming years while recognizing that there are no satisfactory solutions and deracination and exile are not positive things. But I just don't see another way of doing it. I love that that kind of uh, beautiful triangulation of the terrible Biden and Trump position. So, so Trump loves like the fact that, you know, he sees a dictatorship that he might want to emulate and, and be able to rule forever. And he kind of has no problem with the human rights violations. Uh, Biden is saber rattling. And so instead, how about we make, you know, some diplomatic peace with China and try to remove the human rights violations by importing the, the refugees that Trump hates. I like I like that beautiful like um, kind of um, maneuvering around because it, it actually is from a place of principle, it seems. Um, but but those are the kinds of creative solutions it seems the left needs, because typically you have the kind of glory seeking warmongering imperialists from both parties. Uh, and then the, the kind of liberals who uh, pretend that there are ever any altruistic kind of rescue missions that don't have any material interests being advanced um, or, or that aren't themselves perpetuating any crimes. So uh, just just trying to figure out what like a leftist orientation to this world would be that isn't, you know, the kind of realism that we get from uh, the neocons or or the R2P stuff is, is an interesting project. OK, yeah, I think that um, the question of what a left real Realism is is one that I think we're going to be confronting in the current coming years, should the left ever actually win power. I think one of the reasons that th this hasn't been a particularly robust strain of thought, and I would even say like the American left 
hasn't spent that much time even thinking about foreign policy is because it, it's never really governed. And foreign policy is really, um, you know, something that you only do when you govern. And so should there be sure. a future social democratic politician, I think this is going to be a really critical issue for uh, what a left foreign policy actually looks like in practice, a left foreign policy that tries to avoid war while also achieving left wing goals. And I think that is going to also have to involve thinking beyond sort of just a state led foreign policy to include things like sub state relations, people to people relations, left wing connections and things along those lines. From your perspective, I'm sure other policy debates that seem initially not to be about international relations, uh, you probably understand them pretty well in, in terms of how that might shift the ground for the left. So when it comes to whether it's the Green New Deal or, uh, you know, open borders, frankly, or, or, or things of that sort, uh, what, what, what do you think you could offer uh, people to think from the perspective of how it influences foreign policy, and international relations? Sure. I mean, so the way that I think about it is... Um, Social democratic thought, socialism generally, left-wing thought is inherently anti-nationalist in terms of anti-nationalism as something that divides people and internationalist and what might be called a humanist approach and that it sees every human being as, as philosophically equal. Um, so that to me is a starting point. However, I also think the next sort of step in left-wing thought is appreciating your historical moment. And given that, you know, a left-wing movement to me is at least subterraneously <laughs> to coin a term, um, anti-nationalist, one has to recognize that the nation's state is, as currently constituted, is, in my opinion, the only engine of social democratic transformation, both at home and abroad, right? There's no truly functioning international institution, primarily or mostly due to the United States in large part. But regardless, there's no mm-hmm. true international institution with real sovereign power that a left-wing movement could attach itself to. So to me, that's the idea that left-wing foreign policy thinkers need to hold in their head at the same time. These two ideas that seem, are seemingly contradictory, where anti-nationalist and internationalist at the same um, on one hand and on the other hand the nation state is the engine of social democratic transformation and so that to me is how I try to think about these things that that, that we need to use the nation state as a tool um, while also recognizing that nationalism is not necessarily what we'd want to focus on uh, if we were living in an ideal world that's the tension that we have to navigate. Is is there uh, a way that thinking of our national interest, even within the, the context of keeping the nation state in mind as, as kind of the only sovereign power and way to build, uh, whether it's social democracy or democratic socialism, how, how we might think about solidarity with, with kind of um, not just workers across the world, but uh, parties and states that are trying to uh, radicalize and trying to themselves become more egalitarian and free. Uh, how does that fit into what would be just a generally like, oh, this kind of move would favor our country and instead think in a a way that also gives solidarity to other um, people who within their own states are trying to fight for the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think we first have to to start building those connections at a meaningful level. I think you have a little bit through international labor organizing, but it's, you know, not particularly robust in a way that I would like. And and I think that what what our generation of people could do is really start building those connections. Um, I mean, the problem with with thinking about these issues is always like, who are you talking to and do they genuinely represent sort of the will of the working class or the will of the people, however defined? And that's not real. That's not the easiest thing usually to figure out um, unless one has organic connections on the ground there. And so I think that it's a very important thing to do. And I would, um, 
imagine that it would be done through institutions like labor unions and things along those lines. Um, but it's something that we have to start building now because I don't think it currently exists. Um, so the question then would be, let's say Bernie had won, right? Does President Bernie Sanders then give money to left wing movements in, let's say, Brazil to combat Jair Bolsonaro? I don't know. You know, like, does because that in some sense, one might argue is the American empire, you know, now it's on the side of the good guys, on the side of the bad guys, but could the empire ever truly be on the side of the good guys? I don't know. These are really difficult questions that I think we're going to have to confront should the left ever actually govern. And so one of the things that we could do now that Bernie decidedly did not win is begin to think through these questions in a meaningful way that should, I don't know, like AOC or someone, Ilhan Omar, eventually ascend to a meaningful position in government, um, we will be able to provide them with answers along these lines. Yeah, one one thing that strikes me in maybe a, I don't I don't know if this is like liberal or socialist exactly, but you know, just just the role the the power of of self-restraint in the context of sort of international institutions and in international law, you know, to just say that you know, uh, in in the in the objective of you know trying to like further the interests of the international working class and also the interests of you know the United States of America, we are going to set up you know sort of we're going to adhere to international laws and try to set a good moral example of you know proper democracy and you know like treating people right and so on because. Like on, on back to the question of China, it's, it strikes me as probably not a coincidence that China feels very much less restrained in its internal conduct after 20 years of America just shredding all of the treaties that it signed against torture and and wars of aggression and stuff. I mean, that's like literally the first sentence of the U.N. Charter, like war is bad. The whole point of this entire fucking organization is to stop war and here we are just throwing that out the window you know on a completely ridiculous pretext um back with the right. invasion of iraq and so you know uh i mean i feel like the the power the soft power especially in insofar as the the uh, you know the u.s and chinese economies are so uh profoundly intertwined you know the power of bad publicity i think that's something you know the the washington post story had a it's like china does not want people to see what's going on in these camps and they would probably not want to see that a lot more if there was a serious you know international norm against this sort of thing that we hadn't torn up again so you know you think like establishing that sort of thing you know just i mean it sounds like good government shit but like maybe there's some power there so I think there's a couple of things there. Um, I think that China, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state relies on constant crisis at its periphery in order to justify its own centralized power. It's not a surprise that you have Hong Kong, Taiwan, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, Tibet, right? These are all states or movements or problems on the Chinese periphery in order to justify the centers. So I think that right. the state has long viewed this as central to its governance is central to its governing philosophy. So I don't think publicity, 
I agree, China doesn't really want, like, she doesn't want this spread all over the world. But I don't think it would really make a meaningful difference because the Chinese state views it as crucial to its power. The party views it as crucial to its power. Um, however, I do think that as a left-wing sort of principle, international law, international regulation is something to be um, uh, embraced. However, the problem is that, in my personal opinion, organizations like the UN, the IMF, the GATT, come you no know, WTO, World Bank, what have you, are, are essentially instruments of, of at the at the very least American power, and I would say probably yeah. sort of North Atlantic Western power. Um, and I think if you actually go back to the origins of these institutions, they were primarily created to justify. American Armed Primacy. And um, a forthcoming book by Stephen Wertheim of the Quincy Institute called Tomorrow the World actually goes into this in depth. So um, the question is, does one build on the existing institutions like the UN or does one kind of scrap them and try to create genuinely democratic institutions that don't have, for example, the Security Council that effectively gives the five great powers veto power over what happens in the world? And what does a quote-unquote genuinely democratic international institution looks like if, for example, Saudi Arabia is a member. So these are very, very, very difficult questions with no easy answer. And I don't think that I'm go- uh, we're going to come to an answer in, in our lifetime, but I think we need to um, really focus on the importance of limiting national sovereignty for international ends, at least as a utopian left-wing goal. Um, now, how we get there, I think very many people are going to have a lot of different answers, and I don't have a, a singular answer, but it's, a, it's probably one of the most important problems of our time, given the threat of things like pandemic and climate change and global inequality. Yeah, the, maybe to, to just clarify a bit, you know, to, to, like international legal institutions, not talking about stuff like, uh, you know, international trade um rules that allow, you know, corporations to sort of overrule sovereign, you know, uh, nation states in their own territories about it's like, oh, you did an environmental regulation. And so now you owe us, you know, our expected profits on all the mercury we were going to poison your children's brains with. But but more just like, you know, trying to set up like a sort of principle of, you know, um, you're not allowed to like violate certain you know human rights i mean i mean a lot of a lot of this stuff you know aside outside of the economic sphere is in enshrined in law with you know the convention against torture i mean shit reagan signed that and you know to just say like this is a thing that we're just going to try to really adhere to and and try to you know name and shame and punish the people who do engage in it um, and that, I guess that's the sort of thing that, that just hasn't ever really been tried because, you know, as the imperial hegemon over the entire planet for the past, you know, uh, 60, 70 years, the United States has just c- casually violated all of those things whenever it suited the perceived interests of the, you know, ruling clique. But um, it strikes me as something as as a power that is, you know, number one by a tiny margin or maybe number two, you know, uh, in the, in the, uh, forthcoming decades, that could be a a sort of valuable thing to try to set up in, in conjunction with, you know, the European folks who have historically been kind of close to us and, uh, you know, had similar type of open political systems. 
Yeah, I think you'd have to come up with some way to actually get the United States to abandon meaningful aspects of its sovereignty. Uh, and yeah. and that's a really difficult thing to do, um, particularly in the absence of a sort of an international enforcement mechanism, which I'm actually going to be talking a little bit about in my left, uh, in my left, huh? my next foreign exchanges column. Um, <laughs> but I think like that's like a, probably <laughs> the ultimate question, right? Like how do you get a, a ruling class to abandon its sovereignty, um, particularly when, you know, there are are differences between Democratic and Republican administrations on, on these issues, and anyone in the world uh, could be like, uh, like, like Tews talked about in his article, they could be like, yeah, the Democrats say we're going to do this, but look what happens when a Trump comes in, and he just, you know, gets rid of the power at climate agreements. Um, partic- so I think that there's also the problem of domestic political polarization and how that informs the United States' uh, actions abroad and how people view the United States and the sort of um, solidity of its promises and the solidity of its signing particular agreements. Well, we could we could uh, we could just overthrow the ruling class. It's that simple. <laughs> yes, once just, uh, once there's a socialist a socialist uh, utop- uh, <laughs> dictatorship that lasts forever in the United States, these questions will fall to the wayside. <laughs> well, in the meantime, though, you 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 oh, go ahead, Ryan. Oh, I, I was just gonna say, but you know, Biden is. Definitely the most crusading uh, lefty internationalist who who has ever ran for public <laughs> office in the United States. So really, you know, as long as he wins, you got nothing to worry about. Yeah, exactly. Just vote. All you have to do is vote. Exactly. And then I would say the added sort of complexity that one might lay on top of this is that I think you're right in terms of economic power. It's likely that China will overtake the United States if it hasn't already uh, at some point. Um, even though you know, asterisk, who knows how long the party is going to be able to maintain its permanent hold on power. We don't really know what's going on in, in China itself, but let's just um, sidebar that, as they say in academ- academia for a while. Um, but what happens when the United States is still by far the world's overwhelming military power? I, I don't think those you know 750 to 800 bases are going anywhere uh, anytime soon. I, you know, the United States is going to have incredible technological capabilities to destroy much of the world. You know, it spends an enormous amount on its military. You all know these statistics, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know what happens when the military hegemon is no longer the economic hegemon and to what degree things like international capital flows are actually undergirded with um, sovereign military power. And so this is also like a a difficult analytical question is what happens when international global capitalism, which does truly transcend borders, is basically supported by a nationally oriented military like the U.S. military? Um, These are really difficult questions and I don't think there's any easy answers. And I think that the best we could hope for is that, you know, people on our side begin thinking about these problems in a very serious way. The, the threat deflation you talk about as, as a good leftist approach, uh, in the context of your article, at least, seems to be very interesting insofar as it wants to debunk the kind of Schmidtian friend-enemy distinction that tries to just uh, demonize w- whatever potential uh, either state or non-state actors there are in order to kind of drum up the kind of uh, you know um, imperialist activity uh, that helps capitalism as well as uh, other domestic ruling class interests, I'm sure. Um, and so threat deflation would say, well, look, you know, actually 
China and Russia we want to work on um, for climate change. It's in their interest to collaborate. Uh, look what just happened here. Um, and, and, and so, the, so the threat deflation sounds, sounds good, but partially because of the, the complexities you just talked about, um, I wonder if there isn't a, a need to kind of also give kind of a countervailing realism. Like, look, it's actually very complicated what, what our, uh, our interests are and aren't and what kind of oppositions we're going to face and challenges we face. So, uh, you know, because I, for all that threat deflation is done on, say, the war on terror, it seems to be that that kind of global capitalism or perhaps domestic um, capitalism is, is quite interested in continuing all the, the kind of uh, drone warfare and other uh, militaristic operations while the people just forget that it's all going on. So so how, how would you think about those complexities and, and kind of uh, strategizing the, the left's approach to them? Uh, well, so the way that I view it is that Americans have tended to put our own Christian millenarian idea that the United States, uh, to be safe, needs to dominate the entire world, ha- have kind of projected that onto other powers like China and Russia. I would say naturally those two states are much more realist in orientation and don't have any desire to really dominate the world. They do have a desire to dominate their regions or what might be called spheres of influence. So then the question is, what role does the idea of a sphere of influence play in left-wing thought? Um, and I think you'll you'll find different people arguing different things. You know, I, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea of a sphere of influence in a way that other people uh, aren't. Um, so, for example, in East Asia, I think that the United States should, you know, initiate a security transition that enables South Korea, Japan, the various other allies in the region to, quote-unquote, balance against China should China try to expand its regional hegemony in an imperialist way, which is almost certainly going to happen. However, at the same time, I don't think China is ever going to, you know, make any headway in the Western Hemisphere. So to what degree is it in, is it in America's interest, however defined, to, you know, re- remain permanently stationed in East Asia or to consider China a permanent enemy? Um, I think different people will have different answers to that question. Um, but it's, I think it's a discussion worth having because no one knows what the actual future is going to hold. Is China going to, at some point, make it, you know, take, make a make a leap and actually try to dominate the entire world. I'm, I'm very skeptical about that happening, um, but it's obviously mm-hmm. something that people shouldn't totally dismiss out of hand. So that's very interesting, right? So so the, the idea would be to tell people, look, you know, we wanted to dominate the world. And so we projected that onto these these different countries that, that actually don't have that interest militarily, at least. They might economically, if China, I mean, China's been buying up property all on, on countries all around the world and, and so forth. Um, but w- what about the, you know, the idea in the twos article uh, also suggested that like, maybe we need to kind of feed into uh, a narrative about for national security, maybe we need to kind of compete with China to also be great on climate change. It's like a climate change arms race or something. Uh, I, I, what do you think about kind of narratives like that? And, and thinking about how, you know, China is indeed going to be a great economic power, look what they're doing economically, how might that harm kind of the the social democratic or democratic socialist approach to kind of curbing the excesses of capitalism. Right. So I just don't personally think that security competition is ever going to ultimately be in the left's interest. I mean, the left to me should be an international peace movement at its base, you know. Um, Now, a lot of people might disagree with that, but to me that's sort of a foundational thing of left-wing thought. Um, So I'm always skeptical of trying to use national security logics for quote-unquote good ends. So, for example, in my own world, you know, people might say, I welcome a new Cold War with China. During the last Cold War, that was the only time universities were really funded by the government. You know, the (laughs) National Defense Education Act was uh, 
made to combat Sputnik. And so we need to like demonize China in order to increase funding for American universities. So to me, that's kind of a, a, a devil's bargain that I don't think will, will in the long term work in left wing interests, just like it didn't work in the long term in left wing interests during the Cold War. Um, but, you know, people might disagree on that. And I think like uh, twos, I, I would say, is like a kind of like a left liberal. I would say he's he's yeah. not he's not really a democratic socialist or a social democrat. I think he, he's probably a center left liberal, um, maybe a little to the left of center left, but, it, you know, in that tradition. And so maybe he's more willing to sort of use those types of logics. I, I don't know. But to me, they rarely, if ever, have redounded to the left's benefit over time. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that, I mean, Tews is a excellent historian, but he is very into the, you know, just sort of power politics, real politique, like you know, the contest of, of wills type of, type of, uh, analysis. Um, but that, that kind of leads me to another question about, you know, maybe just more broadly, you know, supposing you like Bernie had won the, uh, the, 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 um, presidential nomination and he's in the and he beats trump and he's coming into office and he says okay daniel bessner you're going to be secretary of defense what are you going to do with this this fucking military apparatus you know the the 800 bases the 700 billion dollar however much it is military budget which is like you know fairly close to the kind of cold war average if i'm not mistaken um you know like it, it's it's just a, a difficult problem to me to to imagine not only you know what what are you going to do with with all the, the the guns and the planes and operations and so on like you could say okay we're just going to stop doing that but like the the whole complex of um you know political and uh, economic uh, benefits that flow from the endless war machine. I mean, it's sort of like a, a just transition from the Green New Deal in a much less justifiable fashion, you know? But like, like, are you going to... Do you try to buy off the hot tub industry in Northern Virginia to try to, 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 try to preserve the, you know, the legitimacy of a kind of anti-imperialist uh, foreign policy? Yeah, because... Th- they can't just give all the weapons to the cops because they've already done that. So, <laughs> so uh, first thing I do is I tell Bernie there's zero chance I'd ever get confirmed, given what I've said on Twitter. Uh, and then <laughs> second, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you guys uh, what I did tell Bernie when I advised his, you know, was part of his quote unquote, like extended foreign policy team. I, I don't think we know. Um, I said that Bernie, if you win, um, the first thing we need to do is set up a series of task forces uh, to examine all of these things, where the money goes, where the bases actually are, um, who's on them, where are they on, and how do we go about closing them down? Um, so I think this is actually going to be a very long and difficult process, and, and that is, I think, the honest answer. I don't think there's any easy solution uh, you, to just shutting down the bases. The way I put it is like, just like Rome wasn't built in a day, it, it wasn't dismantled in a day either. And so I think you're going to actually have to look at the problem. You're going to actually have to um, convene, convene a task force to see how these things would actually get going, because you you'd be surprised. There are going to be members of Congress who are, you know, who you'd think would be on your side who are not going to be on your side because of the pork that military spending and defense contracting provides to their own district. So I think that there's a lot of actually complexities to these issues that there is no easy uh, solution. Like just saying, like, we won't do it anymore is not really a real answer uh, and is not serious 
about the obstacles that would face someone should they actually try to dismantle the American empire. Suppose, though, that that you were to just, you know, say, all right, we're leaving the defense budget where it is, but we're pulling back all the special forces, all the drone strikes and all of that stuff. And instead, we're going to have uh, the all the uh, carrier battle groups just turn donuts in the Pacific Ocean out there in the middle past Hawaii someplace. And they're just going to do a sort of turkey shoot with all of the uh, advanced weapons tech made at a, you know, 40,000% premium by Transdime and all the other <laughs> uh, defense contractors. And so everybody gets paid off and you still, you know, are just uh, uh, pissing money down the drain. But all the congressmen still get their, um, you know, their their pork that they can deliver to their constituents. Do you do you think this is a realistic proposal? <laughs> I think you'd have to expend a lot of political capital going against the military, and so you need a president willing to do that. Uh, so what you what you do what you do is you start out. You know the Democrats never know to do this. You start out with the extreme position. So at first you say we're going to transfer all of the military assets to all the local Antifa chapters, <laughs> and, and that's going to be that's going to be the starting negotiating point. And so it's going to give you a free giveaway. So so and that's then from there you can negotiate. I think that's a great strategy. Aim high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thre- Threaten to arm Antifa. <laughs> this, so th- this may be, you know, the, the the last topic I wanted to bring up was international economics. Um, to start with, uh, do you see? I mean, do, uh, have you read the 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 book by um, uh, Ma- Matthew Klein and Michael Pettis? Oh, no. No, I haven't yet. No. Trade wars or class wars? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard about it. I have not read it, though, no. Briefly, so so like one of the conclusions of that book is that the the contrary to the sort of third worldists on Twitter, that the international the the United States is basically the primary victim of the international trade system because we have a gigantic trade deficit um, and we have become the consumer of last resort for the entire planet and um, you know the 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 political systems in China and Europe above all Germany are dependent on these massive surpluses and those are contingent on the United States being willing to swallow them you know to just basically borrow without limit and sacrifice huge industrial zones you know so that we can produce the you know trade deficit that w- that is required so that Germany and China can have massive trade surpluses. And so um, do you think about that as any sort of like a potential lever of influence economically to try uh, to, I mean, I guess, you know, these things work could work domestically and also internationally, but, um, you know, Every day, the United States is a smaller portion of the global economy. Like back in 1945, it was, you know, what, like two thirds of all industrial production was American. And now <laughs> yeah, I believe it's, a, it's about 50 percent. It was about 50 yeah. percent. Yeah. Now we're not even, you know, we're not even the biggest economy, probably, you know, depending on how you believe the Chinese statistics or we won't be for very long. Um, right. And so, you know, we can't continue swallowing these surpluses forever. And so, you know, do you think that um, that could be, you know, a potential avenue of international solidarity to be like, hey, Germany, 
pay your workers more, you fuckers. And China, pay your <laughs> workers more and stop oppressing your internal refugees and in, and uh, bring them into the you know welfare system so that you can in, improve your internal consumption and there and also you know cut down your you know trade deficit because you would be importing more type of thing. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, the largest um, piece of leverage that the U.S. has in terms of the international economy is the dollar itself. I mean, international trade is done in dollars. So uh, that allows the United States to dictate a lot of things in the world. Um, The problem, though, is that it allows the United States to dictate a lot of things in the world. So I think, (laughs) you know, the left uh, left wing foreign (laughs) policy would have to be a policy that approaches monetarily, monetary multilateralism, the creation of different currencies. I mean, ideally, eventually toward a a global currency uh, that is democratically controlled in a meaningful way. Um, But in the moment, the creation of of multiple currencies that would actually um, take power away from the United States to dictate things like international economics. And so, like, I would say that from my perspective, the United States should be dictating less than it has, while at the same time, you're right, sort of promoting working class goals in whatever way is it possibly can. And again, this is a really difficult thing. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you want to do the good parts of that without the bad. The question, though, is you're, are you able, are you really going to be able to do that? Are you really going to be able to have like good hegemony instead of bad hegemony? And I'm just a bit skeptical. <laughs> it's, it's like empire light, you know? Right. Like, well, no, let, let's ask this since it's really hard, uh, really great to think about the, you know, the best case scenarios and, and how to achieve a truly leftist uh, vision for, for foreign policy and for kind of reducing empire. Uh, much perhaps easier, but more depressing is something I think we should talk about, which uh, we, we don't like to think about Biden and Trump, but these look like the, the two uh, dumbass white guys with dementia who assault women, one of which will be the president. <laughs> um, so so we do need to think about their administrations and, and what um, what do you think, you know, maybe take one at a time, Trump and Biden, we're likely to see um, expected or unexpected in, in terms of um, you know how they're how they're kind of state and defense departments are going to operate um, and uh, and yeah is there is there any hope that we could kind of uh, pull one over on on dementia Biden and maybe trick him into doing something good or what do, what do you see as the outlook for these two possible administrations uh, that's a really important question so with Trump I think we'll get the same sort of group of militarists and malcontents that we've got right now sort of cycling through you know Bolton-esque figures Pompeo whatever you know no surprise there with Biden I think we're mostly going to get sort of old interventionist stalwarts like Susan Rice and Samantha Power and people like that. And I don't think the left is really going to. Ha- I mean, I, I I really applaud my left wing comrades who are working very, very hard within Washington, D.C. to try to push the Biden administration in a more left wing socialist direction and internationalist direction in the good meaning of the term. Um, I really applaud their efforts and I hope that they succeed. But in terms of from, from in terms of my sort of analytical position, I think it's going to be difficult for Biden to be pushed in a left-wing direction on foreign policy. I imagine his uh, administration will be oriented toward retaining the status quo, um, maybe with some, you know, greening of the military or something along those lines or reduction of troops in the Middle East and elsewhere. But the structure, the imperial structure will under Biden, I think, remain relatively unchanged. 
Well, on that depressing note, thank you for joining us. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. Yeah, that's important to, to, to be ready to face. Thanks so much, guys. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, and thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you in the next episode.